throughout church history, there have been what are known as seven, uh, seven ecumenical church councils. Basically what that is, is that at different times and in different places throughout church history, leaders of the church, God's church, from all over the world gathered together at specific places to be able to confront heresies that had arisen in the church that really sought to divide and to destroy it. And so it was here in these, these councils where believers and leaders, church leaders from all over, would begin to really hammer out really what, what, what the church actually believed on subjects like the Trinity and subjects like the nature of Christ and, and the Holy Spirit and other doctrines that you and I still believe and hold to today, to this very day. Now, many historians believe that the very first such ecumenical council took place in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. However, the first church council that actually took place was actually hundreds of, occurred actually hundreds of years before that in the book of Acts in chapter 15. This is where we see for the very first time the church being divided by theology and the church coming together from all over to come and try to solve this particular problem. The, the church leaders that were a part of this were, were a who's who amongst church leaders. We're talking about the Apostle Paul, Peter, Barnabas, uh, and, and many others who gathered together to try to solve this problem before what they would believe would ultimately destroy it. So here's what we're going to do this morning. This is a two-parter today. What we're going to look at today is just really what was the problem. What was the problem that the church was dealing with? And in order to do that, I've got to give you a bunch of history and just try to explain what's happening within the text. And then at the end of that, just very quickly give you their conclusion, what conclusion they came to. Next week, we're going to finish it up. So here's the two parts. This week, we're going to be, able, we're going to be answering the question, how does one get into the kingdom of God? How does one become a part of the family of God? Next week, we're to look at the very important question of what does it look like to be in the family of God? So those are the two halves. So we're to look at, first of all, for the majority of this morning, is what was the problem? What was specifically going on here? Look, at, look with me, if you will, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers And they said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, we probably should have seen this difficulty coming. Because in the very beginning, when the Holy Spirit first came on the day of Pentecost, the majority of the people who came to faith in Christ were Jews. They were the ones that came to faith in Christ. And thousands of Jewish people began to believe and place their faith in Christ. Well, after a period of time, the gospel began to spread out beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles. We saw this first with, with Peter and going to the home of Cornelius, and he and his whole family believed. Then it began to spread even more after that when there was a group of Jews who were in Jerusalem. They, they began to become persecuted immediately after the, the, the death of Stephen, and, and they had to flee Jerusalem, and they ended up going to a place called Antioch where the Bible says they shared the gospel not only with Jews but with Gentiles as well, and many came to believe. And then we saw it go even to the ends of the earth, reaching the Gentile world through, through Paul and through Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas began to share 
share the gospel. And again, they saw great wonders of God. And so this was a joyful time. Even for the Jewish church, that is those believers who were Jews, they even began to rejoice that all these Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, what we found and we had studied earlier is whenever they would hear about the Spirit moving amongst the Gentiles, they would send one of these Jewish leaders out to go and to, 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 to validate whether this was an actual true movement of Christ or whether this was something weird going on. And whenever they could validate that this was truly the Spirit saving these Gentiles, chapter 11 tells us that they would begin to praise God and they begin to rejoice. But with all of these, as you can imagine, with all these people coming into the church at one time, specifically these Gentiles coming in, it began to cause some problems. And the problem was for this Jewish people is how do we assimilate all of these believing Gentiles into the church? What do you do? That's a difficult thing to be able to do. For example, if this morning, if we have a hundred of you to come to faith in Jesus Christ, and at the invitation, a hundred of you walk down here and go, I need to be saved. I need God to be able to save me. We be rejoicing, would we not? All of us would, except for one person, our discipleship pastor, Chris, who'd be sitting over to the side going, what do I do with these hundred people? How do I get them involved? How do we make sure that they're baptized? How do we put them in the church? So you understand it would be a difficult thing to be able to do, but what it made it more difficult is that these weren't Jews coming into the church. These were Gentiles coming into the church. So up to this point, whenever the Jewish people would come to faith in Jesus Christ, it was just, they would basically come into the church and do pretty much the same things they were doing before they came into the church, following the law of God, following the law of Moses. They would do a lot of these things. But for the Gentiles, they knew nothing of the law. They knew nothing of God's word. They knew nothing of the practices of God's people. They were pagan people worshiping pagan gods and pagan temples, and now somehow they have to come in. So the church has to decide, all right, what do we have to do to get them plugged into our church, to be a part of the church? And so some of them begin to suggest, well, they need to be circumcised, and they need to follow the laws. And by following the laws, it wasn't just following the moral laws. They said that what they had to do was follow the ceremonial laws and the dietary laws as well, which, as you can imagine, the, the Gentiles weren't real happy about this. They liked their pig pickings, all right? They liked their barbecue. They, they, they liked their steak cooked medium rare. And the men, as you can imagine, men, not to go into great detail, they weren't real fond of the idea of adult circumcision. So they wanted nothing to do with this. And so they're wondering, is there any way else for us to get and be a part of this church than what you're doing? So there's a physical problem, a cultural problem, but there's also an evangelistic problem. And that would have been the problem of if we become Jewish, then how are we supposed to reach our Gentile friends and our communities if we're doing things that would separate us from them? So this was a real problem. That problem, however, got worse. Because there was a small group of Jewish believers in the church at Jerusalem who, who came from what was known as the Pharisee, the party of the Pharisees. You remember the Pharisees, right? Remember the Pharisees? They were the ones that kept giving Jesus a fit during his earthly ministry. Every time he turned around, they were trying to do something disrupt, trying to kill him, put him to death. And so what we find through the scriptures is that some of these Pharisees, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, actually come to faith in Christ. We saw that with Nicodemus. We saw that again with, with the apostles. So Paul, he comes to faith. And so there's other Pharisees that come to faith. And so what they do is they push the envelope. They sit there and say, guys, this really isn't an issue of assimilation in the church. This is an issue of salvation. They don't need to be circumcised and follow the law in order to become a part of what we're doing. He says, they, in order to be born again, 
They have to do these things. In order to be born again, they need not only faith in Christ, but they need to be circumcised, and they need to be able to follow all of these ceremonial and these... Well, as you can imagine, the apostles were not happy with this at all. Because this was not the gospel that they had been given to be able to preach. The gospel that they preached was the gospel that you and I have received, and that is we are saved by grace through faith alone. Amen? That is it. Not anything that we do, but what Jesus Christ himself has done. And so they become irate. In fact, chapter 2, Paul really has a hard time with this. Or verse 2, look at verse 2. It says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I love the way that he says that. This is like so politically correct. They had no small dissension and debate amongst them. It's like you telling your kids, this is going, you, ha- you, you have committed no small sin against me and I am going to inflict no small punishment on you, right? Basically, what, you're, what they're saying is this was a big, fat, hairy deal in the church, as it should be. Why? Because they're not arguing over minuscule little details of the Bible. This is not arguing trivial pursuit. They're not sitting around in their small group arguing over how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. This is serious stuff. And the reason why is because this is fighting and going after the very integrity of the gospel message itself. And so Paul, in, in the words of Luke, he has no, this is no little deal for Paul. And the way that we know that, now let me jump to another book just for a second. We know that is because of the entire book of Galatians. I, I don't know if you've ever read the book of Galatians, but you know, usually Paul's a pretty mild-mannered guy. He's a guy that's, even, even, his, even his enemies, he's saying, hey, it's okay, we love them, it's okay, you know, love your enemies and all this, and he'll, he'll talk with that, and he's telling people how, how much they mean to him, and how he loves them, and how, how his heart is with them. You get to Galatians, he roasts everybody. He roasts everybody. Here's what's important to understand. In the book of Galatians, it is believed that he wrote that when he was traveling from Antioch to Jerusalem to attend this very council. He's traveling there, so this is hot and heavy on his mind. As he's thinking about this council and what he's going to say, he can't help but to be able to write this letter to the Gentiles. And again, he begins to roast everybody. Listen, let let me give you a couple examples. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 9, here's how he opens up the book. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, when we first came to you, we, we preached, and the message that we said is, you don't have to do anything but say, but repent and believe in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And he goes, and you rejoice over that. He says, if I come, or an angel comes, or anybody else comes, and says that you're saved in any other way, that person ought to be accursed. Then we see again in chapter 3, he, 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 he gets even, it becomes even more intense. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul begins to talk to the Galatians because some of the Galatians are falling to this false teaching. Some of them who at first were rejoicing that they were saved by grace through faith alone were like, well, you know what, maybe we do have to be circumcised or maybe we do need to be able to give up, you know, the pig pickings, you know, in order to be right with God. And you know what he calls them twice? In the Bible, he says, you're foolish. You're foolish for believing such things. Do you know what the modern translation of that? You're stupid. You're stupid for believing a false gospel. I mean, this is harsh. And if you think that's harsh, you've got to go to chapter 5. In chapter 5, he begins talking about these guys that are sharing, the, the Judaizers that are teaching this false teaching. And this is what he says in chapter 5. Just let your, I'm not going to, 
I'm not going to unpack this. Just listen. Children, ask your parents what this means. Galatians 5.12, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Nobody even wants to laugh. Nobody wants to say anything with that. This is rough stuff. He is livid over this particular argument concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is angry. In fact, he will confront anyone, anywhere, at any time, anybody who is going to mess up the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, in chapter 2 of Galatians, we see that he even confronted Peter himself. In chapter 2, he said to him, he says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So this is what was ultimately happening. What was ultimately happening is when Peter first went and he began to share the gospel, he was letting everybody know, you're saved by grace through faith alone. Isn't that good news? It's good news. And he says, you're saved by grace through faith alone. But when this circumcision party came, he backed off and now no, no longer did he have anything to do with those Gentiles. And people begin to think they must still be unclean. And the Gentiles at once who had joy that said, God accepts us, you're accepting us, God accepts us. Now all of a sudden, because Peter is no longer fellowshipping with them, he's sending a different message. He's saying, you're not clean yet. So they begin to wonder to themselves, is there something else that we have to do to be born again? And Paul sits there and goes, Peter, you're wrong. You're a scumbag. No, I don't know if he said that. But he, said, he says something of the nature is you are wrong, and he rebukes him. And what we find in this passage in Acts 15 is that the rebuke actually works. Because one of the key people that give testimony at this that made the difference in how they ultimately settled this was because, was because of what Peter ultimately says. So let me, let, let's look at what he says for a moment here in, in verse 7. He, he gets up in front of the congregation And it says, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. Note this, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Grace through faith alone. What he was saying is this. He told the story about when he had the vision of, the, remember the big sheet that comes down and all the different animals, clean and unclean animals are in it? It comes down. He looks at that. Do you remember he heard the voice? The voice goes, take, eat, kill, eat. And he goes, no, no eat. He goes, I can't eat that. There's dirty animals in there. And what does the voice say? The angel of the Lord says, what I have made clean, do not call it unclean. He puts two and two together. And he begins to realize that, that God is not talking about animals. He's talking about people. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And he realized at this point that people are not made clean because they are circumcised outwardly, but because of the circumcision of the heart. That God himself had purified them, not because they became Jews, but because they had placed their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And so he comes and he shares this with them. And then, and then Paul and Barnabas get up and they testify and they begin to talk about everything they experienced and how they had seen all the signs and wonders of God working and his spirit working and the Gentiles as well. And then finally, the pastor of Jerusalem, First Baptist Church of Jerusalem gets up, James. Now this is not James. This is not James, uh, the James that we talked about earlier. Do you remember uh, the Apostle James was killed by Herod earlier in the book? This is the half-brother of Jesus. 
He was the pastor of First Baptist Jerusalem. He was the leader of all of this, and he was the leader of this particular council where they all came together. Now, notice what he says. Very, very important. Verse 14, he said, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. Now, I love that he uses the word Simeon. Just, you, you might blaze through this, but don't. Usually we call him, what, Simon or Simon Peter. He says Simeon because that's the most Jewish uh, 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 aspect of his name as he could because he wants these people to know that the person who experienced all this was not a Gentile, but he was a Jew. And so this is what a Jewish person believed. This is what God had revealed to them. And he goes through and talks about all that. But then he says something important. And with these words of the prophets, he goes, he, it agrees, just as it is written. And then he goes and he quotes from Amos, an Old Testament prophet. And he says, after this, I will return. And he says, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Here's simply what he's doing. He's quoting from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God was saying, when I send Jesus Christ, I'm gonna make everything that is broken whole again. I'm gonna restore my home and it is gonna be full of not only Jews, but of Gentiles as well. Which means it is not Gentiles becoming Jews. It is it is Jew and Gentiles being saved. Why? Because you are not saved by being circumcised. You are saved by the circumcision of heart, by grace through faith alone. So this is what he preaches to them. This is what he says. And when all of this debate is done, here's his conclusion. In the conclu- We're almost done. Isn't that amazing? You guys are like, really? That's the best part of this whole sermon. Yes. We get to the end. Notice this. He says, therefore, verse 19, therefore, my judgment is, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He's like, leave them alone. Leave them alone. They don't need to join your church. They, they, they don't need to, to, to dress like you. They don't need to wear the same clothes as you. They don't need to wear the cheesy God is my co-pilot sticker on the back of their car. They don't have to do any of those things to be sept- accepted by me. Why? Because they're not accepted by their works. They're accepted by my works, by Jesus Christ. By the work of Jesus Christ is how they are born again. Why in the world would Paul be so livid? Why would he be so angry that he would write a book the way that he did in Galatians and show his anger? By the way, by the way, let me just remind you, the Bible doesn't say that it is wrong or a sin to become angry. It just says be angry and sin not. Now, I think he might be borderline. But it says, be angry and sin not. But here's what is true. God's people need to be angry when it is right to be angry. God's people oftentimes get so angry at things that really don't even matter. Color of carpets, the type of chairs, changing around things, changing around a classroom, changing the type of coffee, having coffee, not having coffee. Those are the people just outraged, just outraged. What you need to be outraged is is when people mess with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason, but, but that's not what the church is angry at. Everybody keeps turning a blind eye and people are fudging and messing with the gospel. Why is that so serious? For two reasons. Number one, life is at stake when you mess with the gospel. Life is at stake. Our coming to faith, listen to me very carefully, is dependent on you and I hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. If you don't hear the good news of Jesus Christ, there is no way for you to come to faith in Jesus Christ. No way. No way for you, no way for me, no way for the people in Oman, the Middle East, no way in, 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 in Southeast Asia. People cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ without a gospel witness. 
Paul understood this is why he was so angry. In Romans 10, 14, Paul asked, how then will they call on him whom they have never believed? And how are they to believe on him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without some preaching? The conclusion to all these is no, you can't. You cannot be born again without hearing the gospel. And I'm going to add this. You cannot be born again without hearing the true gospel. If you begin to add something to the gospel that is not there, you are poisoned, that gospel. And that gospel, which is meant to, be, to bring life, now brings death. Many years ago, in March 1962, I was but a glimmer in the eyes of my children in 1962. I was not born yet, but there were six infants in a local hospital that died. They, they, they died, and, and, and they couldn't figure out. One day, three of them died. Next day, three newborns died. And as you can imagine, everybody in the hospital was completely freaking out. The people in the community wondering in the world what could have possibly happened to have led to the deaths of these children. And they were thinking it must be a virus. It must be some kind of plague or disease or something. And as they began to research, they found out that there was a, a, an innocent uh, um, um, nurse who was making the formula for these children. And she went up, and on the shelf, there was, a, there was a container that says sugar in it. But instead of sugar, somebody accidentally put salt in it. So they took the salt, and she was making the formula for these particular children. And each one of these children ended up dying from sodium poisoning. Their bodies couldn't absorb it. They couldn't process it, and they ended up dying. So think of the irony. The very thing that they were given to sustain life and to be able to give life was the very thing that took their life. When somebody comes and they say something is, hey, listen, you need to repent and believe, and then they add anything else, that is a false gospel that will lead someone to hell. There was several several years ago, right here, we had a Catholic gentleman who came up, and I'm not picking on Catholic people. I'm just telling you the the conversation that we had. And he sat down with me, and he goes, you know, we had a good conversation, and I was trying to share the gospel. And he goes, hey, look, you don't need to share any of this with me. We believe the same exact thing. He goes, we just look different in the way that we worship. And I said, I completely disagree with you. I said, if we just had different styles of worship, I would have no problem with that at all. Our problem is we have a different gospel. And he said, what do you mean you have a different gospel? And I said, well, because we believe in grace through faith alone. And he goes, so do we. And you have to do some works. I go, that is not alone, my friend. That is contaminating the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that will send you to hell. And I love you enough to be able to tell you that it will. And so this is what ultimately happens. Now, let me say this. I don't think any of you, some of yourselves are going, what does this have to do with me? What does this have? I, I get it. But let me just tell you, I don't think that the church is really struggling so much today about adding anything to the gospel. I think our problem is we're subtracting from it. Because there are too many churches and there are too many ministers and there are too many pastors and there are too many people who are sharing the gospel who just sit there and go, hey, listen, all you got to do is believe. You just believe Jesus is the Son of God. You just believe. Belief is different than faith. To have faith, it must be belief and repentance. So people will get up in front of a whole group of people and they'll say, hey, you having a hard life? You struggling? You having difficulties? Hey, man, your life seems to be falling apart. And of course, you know what that is? Everybody in the room is going to be like, dude, he knows my heart. No, he knows humanity. Something's got to be, I mean, whether you could get inside, whether you locked your cars in the key or not, uh, the, your, your keys in the car or not, they're like, man, they, how does he know? Man, I locked my keys in my car today. This man's a prophet. And he gets up there and, and, and then he begins to preach and, and he begins to tell you, he says, man, you don't want to go through that difficulty, won't you? You want God inside your problem, don't you? You want him to be able to clean it up. He was able to deliver them. He's able to be able to deliver you. Don't you want the hope that's in Jesus Christ? Everybody sits there and goes, I do, I do, I want that. 
But that's poison. You don't come to Jesus because you want a better life. You come to Jesus because you want your sins forgiven. You want to be made right before God, and you want to have an intimate relationship with him. Now, here's what happens. You preach the gospel, and all of a sudden, all those people that normally come forward, all of a sudden, you just, it becomes a trickle. Because everybody is interested in a God who is going to take away every, every human difficult and every worldly difficult they have, but very few people are interested in coming and believing a God that they're going to submit themselves fully to for the sake of salvation. And so it's not so much about adding as oftentimes it's subtracting. Why is it such a big deal? Because life is at stake. Let me give you one more. And brother, you can come at this time if you will. The second is that peace was at stake. Did you know, and you might be surprised at this, still the majority, the majority of Christians or majority of Americans still believe in God? It's kind of, do you all respond to anything? I mean, I'm just, <laughs> anything, anyway, and so, so, so this would be good. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, the majority of Americans believe in God. Did you know the majority of Americans believe in heaven and hell? And the majority of Americans believe that the way you get to heaven is by being a good person good person. This is, this is what, this is what often, maybe, maybe you think this as well, all right? This is how they view it. They view God as having this big scale in heaven, big giant scale. And when you die, you go before God in his great big scale. And on that scale, on one side is all your bad stuff. And on the, on the other side is all your good stuff. And if you have enough good stuff to outweigh that bad stuff, then you're in, baby, right? So what do we do? So people all the time are sitting there going, what can I do how can I be a good person? I think I'm a good person. Trying to talk to themselves into being a good person. And the truth of the matter is, the Bible says that none of us are good. No, not one. That even the best thing about us is like dirty, filthy leper's rags in the sight of God. We just do not meet the criteria that God demands. And so what happens is we find ourselves, and people find themselves always trying to work. Some people this morning, you're just trying to get to church just because you're like, I can cross this up and this is going to help me to get into heaven. Some of you are like, I'm just trying to be a good parent, to be able to do everything I can, or be a part of the PTA, or be a part of whatever, just because I want to be good so that God would ultimately accept me. And it's so sad because the truth of the matter is, as much as you struggle, you never find any peace in that. It's always working, always striving, always trying to do a little more, always insecurity. The, the, the reformer Martin, Martin Luther was a man that could not find any peace. He was a man who believed in Christ, but he, he, he just kept thinking to himself, how can I make sure that I demonstrate my righteousness before God? What can I do to be able to become more righteous before God? And so he would take part in what was known as religious indulgences. This is what the church, the Catholic church at the time, would, would say, hey, listen, uh, you, you might be accepted by God, but in order for you to get away the penalty of your sin, you've got to do a bunch of things to be able to do this. And so they would talk about indulgences. So on one trip to Rome, he went to Rome, and he began to travel around all these religious sites, and he came to what was called the Scala Sancta, and that just literally means the holy stairs. These stairs were believed to be the very stairs that Jesus Christ himself had, had ascended in order to be, uh, w- when he was going before Pontius Pilate. And it was believed historically that 300 years after his death that the mother of Constantine actually took those stairs from Rome and brought them over, or excuse me, from Jerusalem and brought them over to Rome. They're actually still there to this day. You can go and visit them. And what the priests were teaching is this is if you want the punishment of your sin to be taken away, then you need to crawl up all 28 stairs on your knees. And so if you do, it will take 20 years out, 28 years of suffering, either for you or one of your loved ones away. So Martin Luther, being a man that did not want to be under the condemnation of his sin, 
He did that very thing, and very painstakingly, he began to, one at a time, go and crawl on his knees up on this marble stairs, repeating the Lord's Supper, kissing each step, and seeking peace with God. He finally got to the very top, and while looking back, he thought to himself, who knows whether any of this is true? The peace that he was seeking could never be found by climbing a million stairs on your knees, by anything you do. The only peace that truly comes is knowing that it's Jesus Christ's work that has accomplished your righteousness for you and me and resting in that very thing. He does have a scale. But here's the good news for a believer. For the good news of the believer, it's not our goodness that is weighed before God. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is weighed before us and it obliterates all of our wrong and all of our sin. And so you might be here today and you may be doing a couple things. You might be the very person that says, I've lived underneath this bondage. See, that's what he, that's what he actually says to, to, to Peter. Peter says in his closing, he says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? It's a horrible burden for you to be here today and thinking that your righteousness and you're gonna work hard enough for God to be able to receive you. And some of you would sit back and you would say to yourself, well, I haven't done that. I understand it's by grace through faith alone. But then why are you living the Christian life that way? Why are you so unbelievably critical of yourself every time you make a mistake? Now, listen, do we need to repent about sin? Yes. But when you sit there and you think that your relationship with God is somehow held stable by your goodness and what you do, you are living underneath a yoke of bondage. And that's exactly where Satan would have you to be. And I would just entrust you with this. When he got, when Martin Luther stood at the top of those stairs and was thinking to himself, you know what, there's no way. There's, there, I just don't think any of this means anything. I, this hasn't helped at all. He heard a voice. Now, you know, I'm weird about people hearing voices. But in this particular case, it was the word of God. And he heard these words, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. You don't live unto God because you're earning your salvation. It was earned on the cross, and now you live in the joy and the peace of that reality. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for the time that we...